This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. As we continue to cope with the pandemic, federal government spending appears to be almost limitless. Canadians of most political persuasions seem to agree we need support to make it through a crisis not of our own making. Taking a look at the most comprehensive measure, the CERB alone, some 8.5 million people have applied for this benefit, with more than $43 billion in payments made as of June 4th. Then there are financial benefits for students and seniors, as well as proposed benefits for disabled people, in addition to the wage subsidy, rent subsidies, wage top-ups for health care workers, and small business loans, with provincial and municipal governments demanding more cash from the federal government as well. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says his government cannot begin to add it all up because it is a moving target. But Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giroux disagrees. He joined Libby Snymer on Wednesday. It's true that it's very difficult to be accurate when you try to come up with cost estimates, tax receipts, or the federal deficit in these unusual times. But because it's difficult doesn't mean it cannot be done. Um, the Bank of Canada, for example, has estimated a scenario that's optimistic when it comes to economic growth and a pessimistic scenario. So if the bank can estimate or try to estimate economic growth over the remainder of the year, I'm sure the government can do that. And they have the expertise, they have the know-how, and more importantly, they have information that the rest of us, like my office, don't have, we don't know what the plans of the government are going forward. So that's why it would be very helpful for the government to table either a budget, an economic update, or a fiscal update that would give us an indication of how much this pandemic has cost us as taxpayers so far, and what is the government's perspective on the next couple of months uh, in terms of what it will cost and what it means for economic growth. Why Is it important? Uh, Why should we not just leave it at what the prime minister says? Oh, you know, everything is is too much in flux. Well, that's a very easy answer. But if we were to abandon the perspective, the broader perspective, then there's a big risk that we could keep on spending without realizing how much we are already in debt. And we need to pause and think as a country do we really need or want to spend that many billions of dollars on this, on that? Um, when it comes to spending government money, it's always trade-offs. So if you lose the overall picture, you, you lose a sense of perspective. And my fear is that that's exactly what we are at big risk of doing as a country. We're losing any sense of perspective when it comes to spending public money. So that's why an update or a budget would put things into perspective and it would force a significant, serious thinking about 
what do we want to know to do and what do we need to do going forward. Joining me now, conservative finance critic and MP for Carleton, Pierre Polievre. You know, uh, if the government doesn't know what the deficit numbers are, who does? They're the ones supposedly running the ship here. Uh, and so I'm like the parliamentary budget officer calling on the government to introduce a financial update. Very least they could do, given that they didn't actually present a budget this spring. The budgets uh, have been introduced in this country for in every single year for the last four decades. And this will be the first time in my lifetime that there has been no budget. The very least they could do is give us an update, tell us how broke we are, how big the deficit is, and how big they expect it to be over the next half decade. Anything else that you want to leave us with on this, Pierre? Well, there's some some good news. Yesterday, the Finance Committee adopted my motion to give more funds to the Auditor General. The Auditor General has said uh, that she needs proper funding in order to examine all of these enormous expenditures. And uh, yesterday, the Finance Committee adopted a motion to give her those funds. So I'm very excited to see uh, the uh, an audit done of all the government's extraordinary spending through this period, in addition to the hundreds of billions of dollars that they've spent or misspent on other issues, uh, so that we might get some accountability. So that's a good, positive development, and I want to build on it. Conservative finance critic Pierre Polyev and parliamentary budget officer Eve Giroux in conversation with Libby Snymer on Wednesday. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The murder of George Floyd has sparked worldwide protests against systemic black racism and police brutality. And amid the unrest, there was a call to defund the police. Here in Toronto, City Councillor Josh Matlow is proposing a motion to defund the police budget by 10%, or $122 million annually. Councillor Matlow joined Libby, but first she spoke with Mike McCormick, president of the Toronto Police Association, to get his take on the idea of defunding police. I believe there's a point when, uh, you know, uh, we, we've said this for a long time here in Toronto, um, that, you know, trial by media, social media, people jumping to conclusions, and where we've seen a profession that has been vilified, um, it is concerning and it is difficult for, you know, our officers and civilians, you know, to be dealing with that rhetoric uh, all the time. Um, you know, I think it's quite, I don't think, I know it's very different up here than it is down in the States. Um, but this has been a tone in policing for quite some time around the vilification of the job. And you know what? Uh, we do a great job each and every day in the city of Toronto, uh, in policing in general. Uh, and it's hard, you know, when, when you know, the, the narrative around is, you know, don't be prejudiced, don't, you know, uh, biases and all these other things. But you know, with police officers, um, we, because of the profession, often get lumped and just say, oh, well, you know, because the actions of so few, uh, it's a condemnation on the whole job, which is really unfair. And now let's go to Josh Madlow. What kind of a reception have you been getting to this motion to defund the police? There are people, I mean, obviously, like Mike McCormick, who, who has a job to do, where he he doesn't want the status quo to change, and and and, and you know, with all due respect to him, that, that that's his job. Um, there are people who 
hear the word defund, and it, it is confusing, um, and may not know exactly what that means or what the effects are. Uh, and then there are other, there, there are many voices who will cr- be critical of our motion, frankly, just to be very candid with you, who think it doesn't go anywhere far enough, uh, and would like to see, uh, the, uh, the police abolished. Um, so, uh, I can tell you that it is, uh, I think, by nature controversial. It is a difficult debate. But, but, but despite everything I just said, uh, I think it's absolutely necessary. And it's one that should have happened, not, not just in response to, uh, you know, the movement that's happening now, but frankly, uh, years ago. And I'm glad that we're having it. There are reasonable questions being asked uh, about, you know, whether or not um, the police, everything that the police are tasked to do, if really they are the best uh, suited and, and if they have the expertise to deal with every responsibility they have. Like, for example, there are instances where there is a distress call due to mental health. And, uh, and we've just seen this happen time and time again, where if an officer shows up uh, in uniform with that power dynamic, they've got a gun, uh, it, it, by, by that alone, can escalate a situation where uh, somebody with expertise within mental health who can help de-escalate the situation would be more helpful without an officer there. And these are reasonable questions that we should be asking. It, the reality at, at Toronto Council is the Toronto Council uh, funds, uh, we're tasked to fund the police, but we're not allowed by provincial statute to actually have direct oversight over their budget, which is bizarre. It's a bad governance model. It's not accountable. And moreover, uh, uh, about a quarter of the entire budget goes to the police. Every year, the mayor and council asks every other area of the city, child services, all the, all the different areas, to cut and find efficiencies. The police budget continues to balloon, and even the number of cops that have been hired have, has not been proportionate to the money that that budget keeps receiving. I think it's reasonable to ask why, and it's reasonable to ask that they also look for ways uh, to, um, to to have money reallocated to services that are currently underfunded and maybe even more suited to the job. The reality is that that alternatives to policing when it comes to mental health distress calls are becoming more and more common. There's a model in, uh, I believe it's in Eugene, Oregon, that's uh, gathered a lot of attention recently, where um, uh, roughly, I, I believe it's between 15 and 20 percent of the calls now go to experts who can uh, who can who can better address those calls than police. This in no way, and I know that there are people who are disparaging the police. There are good police, of course. I want them supported for the, for the work that they're meant to do. But it's also reasonable to say that there is systemic racism, that we have to acknowledge that, that we have to acknowledge that there may be better ways to do things the way that we've always done them. And why should we be afraid to ask those questions? Toronto City Councillor Josh Matlow and Toronto Police Association President Mike McCormack. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Momentum has grown to rename Dundas Street in Toronto because of its racist roots. Thousands have signed an online petition for the change because the street's namesake, Scottish politician Henry Dundas was opposed to ending slavery in the British Empire in the 18th century. The call comes in the wake of protests against police brutality and anti-black racism following the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. 
In the U.S., some statues honoring men with racist beliefs have been taken down, along with other symbolic moves like NASCAR's ban of the Confederate flag. Similar moves are underway in the United Kingdom. And it's not the first time there's been an effort like this here in Canada. Recently, there was a bid to remove statues of Sir John A. Macdonald because of his role in establishing residential schools for Indigenous children. To discuss the issue, Libby was joined on Thursday by Dr. Christopher Dummett, Associate Professor at Trent School for the Study of Canada, and Dr. Melanie Newton, Associate Professor of History at the University of Toronto. I think it's a really important conversation. I think it's it's a, it's a it's a wonderful thing that as part of the response to the awfulness that has been exposed in terms of the relationship between police brutality and anti-black violence in the present and the legacies of slavery and the slave trade in the past that there's an intimate connection between those two historical moments and realities of violence that this that there are these kinds of conversations happening. Um, and I want to point out that it's not just like so you have the Confederate statute conversation in the United in the United States. You've had the conversation about the Henry Dundas monuments in uh, Scotland, um, but there was a longer-standing movement called the Roads Must Fall movement in South Africa against um, monuments to Cecil Rhodes. So this is part of a I think a broader questioning of how that history of the legacy of slavery. Um, African colonization, racial segregation, racial inequality, and how these kinds of monuments and street names continue to reinforce the values that produce that kind of system in the present. Christopher, what's your view? I'm sort of intrigued the idea that uh, that street names continue to reinforce um, you know, there's this uh, legacy of slavery, which is a terrible legacy, when, when I'd be amazed if many people knew who, who Henry Dundas was. So my sense is that a lot of these monuments, people don't have any idea of the history behind them. When I'm faced with these suggestions that we tear down statues or change names, my, my inclination is actually to do something uh, a little bit different, which is that is to add names. Um, this idea that you can have an either-or history, you either have to have uh, these names there or not have them is a bit kind of a bit two-sided. It's a bit, it's a bit, a bit simplistic. Um, and I'm also intrigued about what isn't mentioned in these campaigns. These campaigns are often quite rooted in the present and really don't have much of an interest in understanding the past at all. I can say, in terms of Dundas, if he delayed the uh, uh, you know the uh, end of the slave trade in 1790s, as suggested, and it seems 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 that that's the case. This seems like a you know a, a thing we 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 find quite shameful now. But I would want uh, listeners to know to ask themselves where else in the world was slavery abolished in the 1790s? Uh, and the answer to the question is nowhere. And so the fact that, that slavery came to, the slave trade came to be abolished in the early uh, 1800s, is actually quite an astounding fact. I, I, I don't know a lot about Dundas. Uh, obviously, I get a sense of why he's there. But it worries me that we go in with this very selective choice, very politicized choice uh, to try and root out these um, evils, but we're very, very particular about who we who we pick on and 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 who we don't pick on. I'm going to give the last word um, to Melanie Newton. I don't have time. I'm sorry, with all due respect to my colleague, to undo all of the historical inaccuracies that he just pervade. In fact, his, uh, there were places where slavery was abolished in the 1790s, including in the entire French Empire at the time, as a result of both the Haitian and the French revolutions. 
Um, it was later reimposed under Napoleon, but it was in fact abolished by the French Empire in the 1790s. There were also um, particular territories in what would become what be, what was in the early United States that did in fact abolish slavery within their specific territories. Many places in what is now New England. So it's like in fact completely inaccurate to say that. Slavery was not abolished anywhere in the 1790s. That is, in fact, not true. And there had, in fact, been a legal case in Britain in the 1770s. This is the famous Somerset case that didn't abolish slavery on British soil, but said that there was, in fact, no positive law in metropolitan Britain that legitimized slavery and that people, enslaved people who made it to metropolitan Britain should, could not be held against their will. Dr. Melanie Newton, Associate Professor of History at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Christopher Dummett, Associate Professor at Trent's School for the Study of Canada. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. As of July 2nd, it will be mandatory to wear a mask while riding the TTC. Toronto Mayor John Tory made the announcement on Thursday, and then soon after joined Libby Snymer, who asked the mayor why there will be no consequence for failing to wear a face covering on Toronto Transit. This is in the interest of protecting the health of other people. And as we are less able uh, to uh, guarantee physical distancing because people get back onto the TTC, that it is in the best interest of public health for you to wear one. You know, the, 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 this is a practice being engaged by every major city in North America. None of them uh, have chosen to enforce. And I think there was one place where they tried to do it and just found it was impossible. So for, I'll give you an example uh, on the flip side. We said today there would be exemptions for children to and under and for people who had certain kinds of lung conditions where it would make it difficult for them to wear a mask. Well, imagine, you know, us going up to somebody who has a lung condition, is not wearing a mask and starting to quibble with them about whether they really have a lung condition, how do they prove that? Or imagine going up to a child that was two years old and looked bigger than two. So this was just going to lead us down a road which wasn't going to really be productive. What we want is for people to wear the face coverings. And we believe that when they have the case put to them, as we've been doing for quite some time, that as the transit gets more crowded again, which we hope it will become more more well used, that it is in the interest of your neighbor's health, uh, everybody's health, uh, and the continued running of the public transit that you should wear a face covering. And I was on the transit this morning. I can tell you a majority of people are already wearing face coverings, and I think we'll get that number right up close to 100 percent because I think people want to help out. In Cote-Saint-Luc, which is a suburb in Montreal, they've made wearing masks mandatory in businesses and in government buildings. The onus is on business and, and there are fines. And one of the main reasons they're doing that is that they have a very large seniors population. Uh, I, I mentioned it to Mayor Brown in Brampton, which is a hotspot for coronavirus. Is that What do you think of that? Well, in our case, uh, all these steps we've taken, whether it's with regard to people being asked to confine themselves to home for the last couple of months, as they well know, seniors being advised to stay in, uh, you know, now the mandatory wearing of masks on the TTC. This has all been based on advice we've received from our medical officer of health. So if she was to come to me at any point in time and say, in my view, in order to contain this properly and bring about the kind of recovery we want to see in Toronto, that we should be uh, trying to impose an order with respect to the wearing of masks on a broader basis, uh, I would support that because I have relied without exception on her advice all the way through. I will tell you that in the case of our medical officers of health in Ontario, they don't generally have the power to order something as broad as that. So that would have to come probably from the provincial government. But I will just say to you, if that was her professional advice, I would 
advocate for it because I trust her to exercise not political judgment, but health judgment in terms of what's going to best uh, stop. I noticed that the private sector in Toronto, for example, at grocery stores and other kinds of stores have in many cases uh, required the wearing of masks inside their stores anyway. So, uh, you know, for the moment, we're not looking at that. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll see what uh, transpires uh, in terms of hopefully everything getting better uh, as soon as possible. What is your best guess about how much more uh, there will be uh, people will be going back to cars and going back to cars, you know, with a single occupant and what kind of allowance is being made for that? Well, um, you know, that some of that I'm sure will happen. But what we're trying to, you know, you have to remember in a city the size of Toronto with 3 million people, there are many, many people who don't have a car. So this notion of going back to a car doesn't, uh, you know, isn't a part of their reality. There are many other people who have a car, but who, who couldn't even dream of driving the car downtown, spending the money on gas, and then paying, you know, $35 a day to park it, uh, notwithstanding their concerns about health. So that's why we've made other options available for transportation, including bike lanes that we are putting in place are on the spine of the transit system so that people who, uh, you know, use that kind of route to get to work will have an option to bike or to walk. And it's one of the reasons as well, Libby, why what we've done is we have, um, we have uh, strongly encouraged people uh, to um, postpone the return to work, uh, companies, large employers, and they're going along with us, uh, you know, I think quite uh, uh, cooperatively uh, so that we can sort of have all this happen on a gradual basis and provide other options for people so that we won't end up with uh, a sort of a gridlock situation. So we'll, we have to take these things, all of them, one day at a time as we have to take the virus one day at a time. Toronto Mayor John Tory in conversation with Libby Snymer on Thursday. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. After going through the audio, here are some of the best calls of the week. Susan in East York called to say she's against the idea of renaming Dundas Street, despite the racist attitudes of Henry Dundas in the 18th century. I just want to say that it's history and it's like mistakes that were made. And could we get the Civil War over, uh, do it over again and never happen, just erase it? No. He was a a friend of Lord Simcoe, and that's why uh, Dundas Street was named. Can you imagine the small businesses from Kingston Road all the way west to wherever it ends? Everybody having any business there on the street, the the cost of them, who's going to pay for that? Kathy in Etobicoke called to say, based on her own experiences, police funding should not be cut. Body cameras, absolutely. It will protect both both people and the police officers. Defunding the police department is an irresponsible um, approach to anything. Um, anyone that has not worked with the mental health society or in policing has absolutely no business trying to make a decision on defunding without a mature look at both. And I can say that because I have done both. I am in favor of training more people um, and have training for every, every aspect of the police department. They are overextended in a lot of areas, but for heaven's sakes, get rid of this nonsense. Oh, cut the fund, cut the fund. No, that's not the right attitude. Pat in Toronto phoned to offer his perspective on COVID-19 government spending. We need to listen to the budget officer. He knows what he's talking about. Unfortunately, so many of our politicians have no financial training, none whatsoever. 
and or they come from very rich backgrounds. The Minister of Finance is a multimillionaire many times over. The, the Prime Minister, the same way. And I don't think they really identify with a lot of the basic issues. So we've got to listen to this man. And if we don't go after the fraud, then everything will fall apart. And eventually, you know, our Canadian dollar will go down to 40 cents or something like that. Or we won't be able to pay pensions. I mean, we've got to have this this one. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Norm in Toronto, who hopes he'll be celebrating his milestone birthday by going out. I'll be turning 65 on June 30th, and my lady and I are actually looking forward to going to a restaurant. But on the other hand, I've become rather adept at baking pies from scratch. So it's... <laughs> I've made the best of what I can with this isolation. Happy birthday, Norm. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.